All right. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for being here with us today um, on this podcast. Um, I've, I've got to say, um, in preparation for, for every podcast that I do, I obviously make sure to read the book that we're going to be talking about, in this case, Crucial Conversations. Um, and then I also do a lot of digging on YouTube, finding a lot of uh, talks you've given and uh, presentations you've given over the years. And I've got to say that you, uh, and I sincerely mean this, that you're one of the best presenters I think I've ever seen. Um, you have such an engaging style and um, are able to present where it logically makes a lot of sense, but then you also uh, are good at invoking emotion as well. So super grateful to have you on the podcast today. And I, I know how busy you are, so I appreciate you taking some time time to be with us here today. It was a short decision-making process. Glad to be with you, Stephen. Awesome. Thanks. So uh, well, one thing I'll say for the audience, so, so Joseph Grenny, um, I won't go into a, a, a long history, but I uh, just wanted everyone to be aware that Joseph Grenny obviously wrote the book, Crucial Conversations, and, and we probably should mention the co-authors as well, um, Carrie Patterson, Rob, uh, Ron McMillan, and Al Switzler. And uh, Joseph also co-founded Vital Smarts, which Vital Smarts is one of the top leadership training companies in the entire world. They've done a lot of work, and that's that's one of the things that I love about, uh, or I'm grateful to have Joseph on on today, is because he has not just written a book, but has been at this practicing and using it in organizations and with individuals for 25, 30 years now. So re- really, really unique. So I kind of wanted to start out towards the end of the book. I just just reread everything. I found it interesting um, at the end of the book when you said that you 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 somewhat got dragged unwillingly into the topic of communication. So initially, your focus was trying to find what are the crucial moments that disproportionately affect people's organizations, relationships, and lives. So I'm curious if you might talk a little bit about maybe some of the research and, and context, you know, behind that, that it's not something you were, you dove in thinking this was all about communication. Just wonder if you might share a little bit of that kind of background. Yeah, I think, I think integrity in not just the social sciences, but any sciences comes when you have a dependent measure. When you say there's a result, there's some measurable outcome that you're after. And, uh, and so as a consulting company, organization develop, development consulting company, we wanted to be very clear that we we're about creating measurable improvements in results that our clients cared about. So if it was a hospital, it could be reducing avoidable errors. If it's a financial services company, it could be improving client retention. If it's manufacturing, it could be reducing waste and, uh, and improving cycle time and things like that. So we would always start from the client's perspective and say, are there results that you care about improving? The second step in the process was to say, all right, are there a few behaviors, a few behaviors that disproportionately impact client retention or avoidable medical errors or whatever the outcome was? And so that's what we would consistently do. We'd go into organizations and say, are there patterns of behavior, ways people are collectively responding in certain unique circumstances that, that have an enormous impact or at least a hypothetical enormous impact on their results? And then we would try to change those behaviors. So, so the, the way we got dragged kicking and screaming into this, in fact, happened not far from where you are right now, Stephen. I understand you're in North Carolina. A little ways south of you is a hospital. 
And one day in that hospital, a patient uh, received a flawless amputation of a portion of their right foot. And afterwards, as everybody was patting themselves on the back and cleaning up the operating room, somebody discovered that the patient had been admitted for a tonsillectomy. So we were called in shortly after that because not just was there this, this signature kind of error that obviously makes the headlines of local papers and horrifies all the people thinking of coming into the hospital, but they started to discover that there were routine medical errors, sometimes misadministered medication, sometimes a wrong procedure, sometimes other potential sentinel events that, uh, that could have harmed somebody. They discovered that this was a chronic issue in the organization and said, this is a result we want to impact. So here comes Vital Smarts. Vital Smarts comes trooping in and saying, are there some, some crucial moments? Are there a handful of moments where how people behave disproportionately affects this? We start asking around. It turns out that that morning when that surgical procedure was done, there were no fewer than seven people who could have averted that disaster if they had done one simple thing. And you now know the answer. The answer was speak up. There were seven people who saw something wrong, who saw something that that gave them pause, but said nothing. Now, most of them said nothing because there was some risk involved with doing so. It could be that the attending physician had a short temper. Could be that the pharmacy, uh, the person in pharmacy that was being asked to do something didn't like to be questioned or whatever it was. But seven different people, well-intentioned, smart, good, committed professionals saw something but said, said nothing. So that was a first experience. But then we started seeing this in dozens and dozens of places. It turns out that The health of relationships, the health of teams, even the health of entire organizations can be largely predicted by one simple thing. And that is the average lag time between when people see something and when they say something, between when they feel a concern and when they discuss their concern. That lag time drives the quality of marriages, the intellectual honesty of executive teams, uh, even the strength and health of entire organizations. So that's how we began to focus on crucial conversations as a critical variable in organizational performance. I, I find it an, another thing going along with that, uh, with what you wrote in the book, is that at the heart of a lot of chronic problems, right, from both an uh, individual relation level and also organization level are these are these crucial conversations. And that's you know, one of the things we talk about on this podcast a lot are our paradigms. And I think it's, I think it's a, when I went back and, and studied this again, it was a bit of a, a bit of a paradigm shift um, for me again, uh, after reading this, thinking that these, these conversations that are crucial are kind of like, it's like the Pareto principle, right? The, uh, the key conversations drive most of the results. And that was kind of, kind of my my takeaway from it um and that this is a a key skill that leaders and really anyone that wants to be influential you know whether that's an organization or you know in relationships um needs to kind of master this ability to address you know emotional and politically charged uh topics and so um yeah I, and i find that fascinating that it's identifying uh, the average lag time. So that's, and essentially that's just, you're just saying that how, how long does it take for people to bring up something, a problem or something that's uncomfortable? That's, that's essentially what you're meaning, right? Yeah, it's exactly the case. And if, if you want to put it more directly, kind of at the principal level, 
at the principal level, truth is what drives improvement. And the more rapidly people get exposed to greater truth, the more, the more quickly they start to see improvement. And the process through which human beings in a social system get exposed to the truth is a communication process. You, usually each of us have a piece to contribute to, to the total understanding of the truth. And so to the degree there are chronic behaviors, patterns of behavior that withhold truth or delay its exposure, you bog down the performance of any social system. So shrinking that lag time is, is really the, the core responsibility of leaders. How, do, how does the average person uh, go about these crucial conversations? The way, the way you define them in the book anyway is, is there's, uh, it's a situation where there's opposing opinions, strong emotions, and high stakes. That's, that's kind of the, the way you define what a crucial conversation is. But what, what, in your experience, what, what, what is the average person, how do they approach these type of conversations? What do most people do? Well, this is one of the sad ironies of life, Stephen, <laughs> that, uh, that it turns out that when it doesn't matter, we do really well. When it matters most, we do our worst. <laughs> but when we're talking about trivial things, you know, if I want to tell you you got a piece of toilet paper stuck to your shoe, no big deal. I'll tap you on the shoulder. But when I want to tell you that your presentation was an absolute bomb, you offended two of our, our key clients, I'll sit and obsess over this for weeks and weeks sometimes. And, and if I do approach you, I'm going to sugarcoat it. I'm going to understate it. I'll say, hey, Stephen, how about if we collaborate next time on the presentation? Rather than coming right out and saying, dude, that really sucked. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm here to help. You know, I can help it be a lot better next time. And so the fact that, that we wait that long, it affects our marriages too, Stephen. So you know, you're, you're in a relationship with somebody, and the stakes are enormous because that relationship matters to you. And so it turns out in our personal relationships, we can't even talk about which way the toilet paper hangs. We can't talk about, you know, what time we set the alarm for because we're so worried it's going to trigger this emotional response in others. And so the lag time starts to yawn really wide. And into that lag time creeps all the mischief of our lives. All of the pettiness, the cold shoulder, the politicking, the gossiping, all that stuff happens during that lag time. So you eliminate the lag time, you eliminate the politics. Right. And I think a good, just the way you described it, um, a good illustration I saw in one of your presentations you talked about was, was your son. Um, I can't remember the son's name. Samuel maybe did an experiment with um, brownies. Could you, <laughs> could you maybe, could you maybe share? I, I thought that was, uh, that ties in nicely with kind of how we're all conditioned growing up, but yeah, maybe share a little bit at how you set up that experiment with him, or he may have done it all on his own, but. Yeah, it was largely his idea, and I, I was pretty skeptical about the outcome. So, you know, he was interested in my work, which was really cool to have a seven-year-old that was paying attention to dad. And, uh, you know, I liked this whole thing about people talking about tough stuff. And he said, well, I wonder how little kids deal with that. So he thought, let's put little kids in an uncomfortable situation where they think they might offend you if they tell you what they think and see if they'll tell the truth. So he had, you know, three-year-olds, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and kind of this whole range of ages wondering if, as you get older, would candor increase or decrease? How would that work out? So the way he did it was he gave them brownies. And he said, here's some store-bought brownies. Here's some that I made with my mom's special recipe. And, uh, and, he, and then he told them that he was going to pay them to participate in this experiment. And he had them taste both the brownies. And then he said, all right, here's the store-bought. Here's my mom's. What do you think? Now, the, the mom's special recipe was made with almost no sugar. It was almost exclusively salt. 
they, these things tasted like, you know, you know, like, <laughs> like licking the ocean floor it was just absolutely awful. And you could see on video of this, the kids' faces. I mean, they, they could hardly mask their disgust. And then he'd get to the crucial moment. He'd say, well, what do you think? You know, which do you like best? And almost every single kid, three-year-olds, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds would lie about their opinion. So, so you know, it, it begs the question of when and where do we learn this? It, it turns out at a remarkably young age, you and I start to believe a damnable myth. It's a horrific misconception, false belief about life that causes problems for the rest of our lives. And that belief is that you frequently have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend, that you can't do both. Now, now, of course, it's challenging, but the fact that we don't even entertain the possibility that you can tell the truth and keep a friend, or even more so, this is the paradigm shift, more so that the only way to really have friends is through the truth, not around the truth. Inauthenticity does not create intimacy. You can't have real connection with another human being while faking it. And so the, the core need that we all have to learn to express the truth in a context of love, to be able to be absolutely 100% honest about our opinions, but to do so in a way that expresses, expresses love and respect simultaneously. To be able to do both is something all of us stop learning to do at about age three. Yeah, I, it, it's a great story, great illustration. Everyone, everyone check out the video because it's hilarious to see, see those kids' reactions. But yeah, it is, and 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 I realized in in rereading this book um, recently, I because I I read this book years ago, and it made a big impact me on on me then. But then I I've realized that I've let so many things kind of creep back in. I think you really have to be intentional. I know you've you've talked about that, and 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 uh, the other people at Vital Smarts that says, hey, like if we're not on our toes constantly with this stuff, it's very easy to creep back into, you know, into old patterns. And I think for me, um, an, another paradigm shift for me on this was, uh, one time you had an illustration where you showed a person traveling along a path and then a crucial conversation comes up and it's illustrated as a big pit, right? A kind of a pit of despair or something, something, some, you know, someone falls in. Whereas another way to look at it is actually that pit should be really how you need to see it is, is a staircase that kind of gets you up to the next level. And that, that to me is, is a great paradigm shift because I know for me, um, you know, cause right now my current job, I'm in sales. And so I have a lot of crucial conversations and I freak myself out constantly with it where I look at these crucial conversations. I go in looking at it as a pit rather than trying to say, no, this is like the key conversation I need to, to get to the next level. So it's kind of a, I don't know, just, just wanted to share that that's, that's kind of a reframing thing, I think. And, and reading experiences of people in the book, they say, yeah, I actually didn't read the book that much, but, but having an awareness of this idea, reframing it makes, makes a big, you know, big difference. So. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful way of reframing it. And you know what? What we find too, and probably everybody listening to this will will immediately acknowledge what I'm about to say, even though it's not what we think in the moment. And that is that that held well, crucial conversations are trust accelerants. They are the fastest path to increased intimacy and trust in any relationship. And so, while we fear them, 
they're this incredible opportunity too if we just show up authentically and show up lovingly. And that requires some skill, but first it requires attitude. It really does require uh, coming from a place where my motive is not just to solve the problem for me, but to solve the problem for others. I find it interesting. Another thing that was mentioned in the book is is uh, you said that when it matters most, right? In these crucial conversations, we we usually do the worst, like we talked about. That the the worst thing you can do is run from the conversation. And they talk a lot about silence and violence. Uh, maybe a good thing you can do that's a little bit better is to sugarcoat it a little bit. But that the best thing to do is to be a hundred percent candid and respectful. And the, and the whole key to that is to be able to create create safety in the conversation, right? Um, so you outline so much in the book. And actually, one thing I want to ask it here, I'm sure you get this reaction sometimes when, when I read the book, it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing stuff. I need to apply this, 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 I'll do all these things. And by the end of the book, I've I felt like totally overwhelmed. Like, oh, how do you, you know, how do you keep track of 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 doing all this? What what would be? Because I want to go through the seven kind of the seven principles you talk about one by one. But what what would your advice be to maybe someone that's reading this? A lot of people might be being introduced to this concept for the first time. What 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 do you say to someone that's introduced and they kind of get the fire hydrant of all this, and then you know maybe be like, wow, how do I implement all of these things in my life? Yeah, the, the, the book is organized into three different temporal components of a crucial conversation. What do you do before you open your mouth? How do you open your mouth? And then how do you finish? And so if those are three, three broad chunks of a crucial conversation, in fact, I'm working on a third edition of the book right now, and it'll be much more clearly broken out into those elements. So they're on my mind. Honestly, you know, you refer to the Pareto principle, 80% of what it takes to ensure it goes well is doing the stuff before you open your mouth. If you just get your heart right, your head right, your emotions right, the words tend to naturally follow. And effective crucial conversations aren't about some kind of esoteric diplomatic skills. It's not cobbling together the right combination of words to get past somebody's defenses. It really is about where you're coming from. And so, the principles of start with heart, of master my stories, and then as you begin the conversation, creating some safety for others, those really are the foundation. And if people do those right, even one of those three, you know, the odds go up enormously that people will be able to hear what you need to say in a way that, that doesn't provoke defensiveness. Now, I have to caution, this isn't a magic trick book. This isn't about that you can get what you want from people and manipulate them into responding the way you're hoping. All we're, all we're offering in this is if you hold the conversation well, then hopefully they'll be able to hear what you have to say in a way that doesn't provoke defensiveness. The strength of your argument is going to have to stand on its own after that. But, but at the end of the day, we should all be wanting truth, not just getting our way. And so if, if you make your argument and there's more truth to be had from the other side that helps you better achieve your goals, then hallelujah. Right. No, that's, that's very well said. Um, so, talk, so you, you mentioned a few of them already, but I, I wanted to go through one by one, kind of the, the seven principles you highlight towards the end of the book. And I, I know we're in a, a short space here. Like we, we're not going to, I mean, you have, you have three day week long seminars on this stuff. I mean, you can get deep and granular with this and it's, and it's great. So the purpose today is just, I just want to give a high level overview of each principle you know, spend a minute or two on it. And then 
um, I, I think that might be helpful maybe to introduce someone to this. They can see the power of it. And then obviously the idea with this podcast is that people would be reading this beforehand anyway. So this, this could be hear, hear it from, from the man himself who, um, who came up with this. So, so the first principle is, is start with heart. I'd love, love to hear what, what's the high level key takeaways from that principle. So the, the first thing that was wrong in our crucial conversations is not our behavior. It's our motive that when, when I say I'd like to go uh, on a beach vacation and my wife says, forget that, I want to go on a mountain vacation, right in that moment, something happens inside me. Whereas I entered this conversation wanting to find the best vacation opportunity for us to have a terrific time, now it becomes about winning or about being right or about keeping the peace and rolling over, uh, about giving in. So my motive shifts. The first key to getting a crucial conversation right is getting your motive right. And the best way to do that is a simple, simple little cognitive intervention. Ask yourself, what do I really want? What do I really want for myself, for the other person, and for this relationship? You answer that question, and it helps you align your motive with the conversation. I literally had that conversation with my wife uh beach versus versus mountain trip, like in the last week. So that's, that's pretty funny. Um, okay. That, that's great. So the second principle is learn to look. What, what, what are the, what's kind of the key takeaways from that one? When you enter a crucial conversation, when you know that it's going to be a little dicey, a little risky, you need to learn to listen at two levels. Listen to the content, listen well, listen to what they're saying, but, but equally important, watch the process. And you're in particular looking for two things, signs of people moving to silence or moving to violence. Now, by violence, we don't necessarily mean physical violence, but it could mean coercion, could mean name calling, could be labeling, could be making forceful, overstated arguments, using aggressive tactics to get my point or some form of silence. I start understating sugarcoating when my body language doesn't match the words that I'm saying. So watching for those gives you a clue about the third thing you need to do. But always, always, always be attentive, not just to what they're saying, but to how the process of the conversation is going. And that's that's the average person go, usually goes into one of those two, right? Either silence or violence. Would you say the majority of people probably go silence rather than violence unless... Absolutely. Yeah, unless someone's more... I, I know that's for me, definitely. I, I find myself a lot will just kind of be quiet and you know, bite my tongue, essentially. (laughs) Yeah. And and honestly, many of us use even our violent or aggressive tactics to cover up our silence. We don't want to be vulnerable and tell the truth about some of our fears and concerns. And so we, we use aggressive tactics to mask it. Right. So you mentioned the third one that ties into that. So making it safe. Yeah. So, you know, learn to look, if you notice people moving to silence or violence, What you need to start to understand is the reason they are doing that is because they don't feel safe. If you start changing your paradigm about it, that violence, for example, isn't a manifestation of power, it's a manifestation of fear. It's a manifestation of people being scared. And so they'll use their position, their their resources, their physical presence, they'll use some resource to try to cover up for that fear. When people move to silence or violence, it's because they don't feel safe. What we teach in Make It Safe is skills that you can use, behaviors that help produce evidence for the other person that they're safe. The two things you need to reassure people of are that, number one, you care about their interests, their problems, their concerns, and number two, that you care about them. And Make It Safe is about generating evidence to reassure them of both of those truths. That's great. And then the the next one is 
master master my stories. This was probably my favorite one to read about, but I'd love to hear how, how that ties into the process as well. You and me both, Stephen. I'll, I'll go to my grave working on this one. Yeah, it's a, the, this one I, I think is is the skill of emotional control. And, I, and emotional maturity is the key to life. Our capacity to understand and intervene to affect our own emotions, to regulate our own emotions, is really the master skill of life. It helps us achieve, create relationships that we can sustain, be a great leader. And so the, the key insight here is that all of your emotions are yours, and you create them through the stories you tell. We describe three kinds of stories, victim, villain, and helpless stories that are at the root of most of the unproductive emotions that get in the way of us having effective, crucial conversations. And so to the degree people can be conscious of when they're authoring those kinds of stories and then intervene to interrogate and challenge those stories, they can develop a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence. And and I, I would just like to add on this one, um, I obviously grew up around my my grandfather uh, always talking about being proactive. Uh, this idea where, where he was struck years and years ago by what Viktor Frankl wrote about between stimulus and response, there is a space, right? And in that space, we have the power to choose our response. And I've always loved that. But, but reading this, um, Master Your Stories, I love how you, you know, between stimulus, what you see and what you hear, and how you act, there's a space. And and in this space, I, I just haven't found it, um, the, the way that you defined it ta- about ta- telling the story and that triggers emotions. Because I've always said that it's like, okay, that's a, that's a great concept. Yeah, like you can choose your response. But what if you were just flaming hot, like you just mad, like you, you feel this anger yeah. built up and you're saying, well, yeah, it's like they're not really making me angry. It's, it's your own choice. But still, I feel that emotion strong. Yeah. And so that, so it kind of, it really struck me big just cause I've, I've heard this, these concepts before, but this idea of reframing the story and, and almost being curious, you know, going at it with some curiosity and saying, Oh, it, interesting. Why, why would they say that? Are they're probably not a bad person. There there's probably some reasons behind it. And that's, I mean, that's had a huge impact just in the last few weeks, um, of me kind of going over that where it's like, Rather than just just reacting or, or like holding it in and be like, well, I can choose my response. It, it's hard to choose your response when you're feeling angry and upset. Um, and, and so I loved, yeah, just huge impact like on my life personally of just this idea of what, what's the story you're telling yourself? How are you interpreting it? And, and that triggers emotions, right? Um, yeah. Anyways, I just, I just wanted to add that because it's, it's, it's been huge. So... Um, okay, so that, that that was the fourth one. The fifth one is uh, state my path. Yeah, so now we start to transition into opening your mouth with with uh, make it safe. We've transitioned there a bit. State my path is a skill set for presenting your position, your your perspective, and when we package what we want to share, we tend to package it in a way that is almost perfectly designed to promote to promote defensiveness. We come in and say, all right, you know, it's a performance review for you here, Stephen. And basically, I just want to say you're a disaster. You know, you, you, you've really torn down the performance of the entire team. When we finally dump it out, it comes up in this ugly, vague, incomprehensible way that is perfectly designed to tick the other person off. And we think that what we're doing is being brutally honest. We aren't. We're being vaguely honest. 
And vagary leaves so much room for the other person to tell stories about your intent, that your intent is just to tear them down and to hurt them and that this isn't really about the truth. And, and so State My Path just lays out a disciplined approach for you sharing in a way that is persuasive, but not abrasive. And the one key idea there is to start with the facts, to strip, to strip out any provocative, any hot language that just triggers a negative response. And not just to strip it out because of its potential impact, to strip it out because it isn't true. It's story, not fact. It's not information. And so if all of us could discipline ourselves in our conversations, I mean, we're looking at political rivalry in the United States and, and outside in the world as you and I are recording this today. And, uh, and most of that is fueled by people presenting stories rather than facts to each other. If we'd learn to just present it in the way that it persuaded us initially, we'd be able to have far more ceremonious conversations. I, I agree. Um, the, the sixth one is explore others' paths. Yeah, we've got dual responsibilities. Now, this was an interesting decision we made as we wrote the book. Do we put state my path first and explore others' paths second? Uh, or do we do like Stephen R. Covey would have wanted us to do and put seek first to understand first? What we realized is that the primary problem we're trying to solve is one of silence. It's of people withholding how they really see things. And so, yes, we need to make a strong argument and explore others' paths that coming in curious and taking equal responsibility for helping the other person to share their point of view is a critical part of getting to dialogue. But we felt first we need to call them to say, and be honest, you know, let's start there. And then the last one is uh, moving to action. Yeah, the one key element there is how you end a crucial conversation is a predictor of whether you're going to have it lead to change or a deja vu conversation a week later. All of us are frustrated when we when we feel like we've gone through the emotional upheaval of, of solving a problem and then the problem doesn't go away and there's a misunderstanding another week later. There, there's a very simple discipline at the end of a conversation of just summarizing who's going to do what by when and how we'll follow up just summarizing all the key takeaways and even recording them. And that'll do one of two things. Either everyone will nod their heads and then recall what they committed to, or it'll surface misunderstandings that we really haven't settled and give us a chance to do that now while we've got a good healthy context to do it. So it's a critical, critical and frequently forgotten piece. Th thanks for uh, going over the keys and, and hearing it from yourself. That's that's super helpful. Um, how, how has, I'm, I'm curious, Joseph, how, how has this work, um, it, in, well, how's it impacted your own life personally and, and, and which of, of all these principles we talk about, wh which one is, is the hardest for you, you know, in your life? What, what's the one that you have to come back to? And the answer might be all of the above. It, it fluctuates, but <laughs> you've been I, talking I'm, to my family, haven't you? No, no, <laughs> no. I just, I've just, I've been around, you know, uh, People like my dad and my grandpa who's, who've written books and I've seen, it's like, oh, it's great that they come up with, with these insights, but it doesn't mean that, that they don't struggle themselves yeah. with, their own, with their own principles. Oh, and yeah. I actually think that that brings authenticity to it, right? Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, for, for me, the, the three that I work on continually, the three that I think have provided the biggest return are start with heart, getting my motives right make it safe, being attentive to the needs of the other person and offering the grace that they need to be able to enter into the conversation in a confident way. But the one that is the greatest challenge for me that I continue to work on is master my stories. 
I still notice that that some of my own emotional wounds, that some of the weaknesses that I have that show up in my relationships with the people that I care the most about. So just this last weekend, I've had a role in leading a, a series of retreats. And my goal from the beginning was to develop leaders so that they would take over these retreats over time. And now they're taking it over and I am bummed out. I am really bummed out. I am feeling sad and rejected and unwanted and all kinds of stuff. And it has nothing to do with them. It's my own stories. And so here I am after 30 years of researching and teaching this all over the world, still sitting here feeling like a victim sometimes because of the stories I'm telling myself. And I, the, the one wonderful thing that I have is at least an understanding of where that leverage point is that I can expose, interrogate, and improve upon my story. And it takes me to an incredibly different place. And it's still a lot of work. Thank you for sharing that, being somewhat vulnerable to do that. So You're not really recording this, are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Um, Good. No, this no this this has been this has been great. So there, there's there's two questions um, that I'll always end all of our interviews uh, that we do on this podcast with. So th- so the first one is what is what is one practical action step a lis- a listener could take to apply crucial cri- crucial conversations in their life? You know today. Well, I wish it didn't sound so commercial, but the first honestly <laughs> that I'd offer is read the book. Um, and, you know, and don't read it in a sitting, you know, read a chapter and then stop and maybe stop for a few months and, uh, and go to work on that idea. What, remember the, the whole notion of our research was to say, are there moments of disproportionate influence? And even within these skill sets, there are moments within moments, there are a few skills that probably will, will have a disproportionate effect on the quality of your conversation. So if you read a chapter and you find one of those, just put the book down and go to work with it. And I can absolutely promise you that while maybe you'll never get to an A plus in your crucial conversations, me personally, I've probably gone from a C to a B over 30 years of work, but the payoff is enormous. The quality of my relationships, the number of perfect moments of connection that I have with other human beings have gone up exponentially because of just working on a handful of things. So it's worth the work. And reading your book recently, and with, with with really with any books you're you're reading like this, I, I feel like it's so key. You can have such a huge impact if you let others around you know what you're reading. And you know, if you let people that you have crucial conversations with let them know that you're reading this book, I think you'll find that you'll have opportunities to have to have and practice, you know, what you, what you're actually reading. So that's just 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 an aside that I've I've found helpful in my own life where it's like I, I would love to apply this principle. I'm gonna let people know I'm reading about this and have opportunities yeah. to talk about it. That's terrific. And then the the last how we'll kind of end is um I, I ask this to every um every author that we have on is is kind of imagine yourself, pretend that you were talking with someone one on one who was just starting out in their career or early on in their career, and they asked you about success. Um, what what advice would you give that person as far as what success is and, and how to be successful? I know it's a broad question. You can take it how you want to take it. But yeah, if someone asked you that, what, how, how would you respond? Well, one, one of the problems with life is, uh, was it Hemingway that said, we live our lives forward but understand it backward? Um, it was somebody with a, th- a three-syllable name, probably. <laughs> and uh, 
uh, the, the challenge that that presents to us is that oftentimes you don't know what your purpose is until it is already a was. And you're looking back and kind of connecting all the dots. And yet, I think you're more likely to connect the dots if you're trying to be purposeful about the impact you're trying to have. Um, I, I get worried and offended sometimes these days uh, when I, I look at our emphasis on entrepreneurship. We, we talk about it as though um, it's separate from purpose. And there is a skill set to building an organization and building a business, but I think a lot of people just say, I want to start a business. I don't think any great business was started with that concept. It's always started by somebody with a passion, with a purpose, that sees a problem in the world that they want to solve. That's what Stephen R. Covey did. That's what Stephen M. R. Covey is doing. People that look in the world and say, there's a wrong that I can write, or there's a problem I can solve, or there's a way I can enhance life. The, the way to be successful is to make sure that you're defining success in purposeful terms, not just in terms of an exit and building an organization or rising to a certain place in an organization. Those are the most unsatisfying pursuits of all. The, the most satisfying thing at this point in my career is having conversations like the one you and I are having right now. This is an absolutely perfect moment to me because it feels purposeful. It's on mission. It's about saying, are there a few people out there that are struggling in a relationship that before listening to your podcast have, uh, have been filled with uncertainty and they're going to walk out with greater confidence and align their actions with their basic values in a more effective way because of what we did. What a wonderful day. I will be a success today because of this conversation with you. And, I, and I'm grateful to see that you're following that same pattern yourself. Thanks, Joseph. I, I really appreciate that. And, and the impact you've had on the world and uh, literally millions of people who have come in contact with the, your book or the Vital Smarts organization is immense. So thank, thank you again so much for, for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure.